Greetings, brethren. Isn't it exciting to be here at the Feast of Tabernacles this year? You know, a few years ago, my sons and I spent five days hiking in an extremely beautiful part of the country in central California, the Sierra Mountains of California, with uh, crystal clear mountain streams, scenic mountain peaks. You know, being a part of God's creation, being able to spend a little bit of time in God's creation is always kind of uplifting and rejuvenating, just like what we're looking forward to now during the feast towards the kingdom of God and what God will through Jesus Christ, accomplished then, and with our help as well. And many of those peaks and streams and trees are refreshing. They are rejuvenating when we're surrounded by God's creation. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen often enough, but when we're surrounded by God's creation without roads, without buildings, without the evidence of man's creation, I think sometimes we're just a little bit closer to the kingdom of God, to to the mindset of the kingdom of God, of God's creation, of course, His government and His family working under Jesus Christ. Well, a few years ago, we began our five days of hiking and camping in a scenic grand beauty of God's creation in the mountains, an area where I've personally been to many times back over the years, actually a lake by the name of Kennedy Lake. It's an eight-mile hike through uh, some interesting country, Fairly well-worn path. Sometimes one can see a, a broader path that's dusty at certain elevations, well, hiking in the warm August sun. And it was quite evident that many others had traveled that same path. It's a, it's a well-worn path. It's a well-known path. And it has been frequented quite often by so many every single summer. The path being wide and dusty, sometimes hoof prints of horses was evident. And, of course, boot Prince as well, evident uh, all along the way. Countless pairs of boots had gone that way. In fact, the trail was so worn in areas that the dust, the dirt was powdery. We often hiked maybe 20, 30 feet apart because we didn't want to breathe each other's dust at that time. At the end of the eight-mile hike, we crossed a clear trout stream, beautiful stream, and camped on the other side of the stream near the lake, enjoying an afternoon and evening, a little bit of fishing, and a campfire, and all the good things you do, backpacking and hiking and camping. It just so happens that the best camping was on the other side of the stream. So we had to forge a stream across a log. You're always unsure as far as walking across the log, and not wanting to fall into the cold mountain water. And the camping area itself was heavily used, also somewhat dusty, but it was a natural stopping area for other hikes at further distances into the distance. We enjoyed our stay there for an evening and an afternoon camping and fishing, eating our fill of trout cooked on the open campfire. And the very next day we decided, though, it was time to move on. And our next destination was an area, a rigorous climb, in fact, up to Lake Sharon, much higher up on the slopes of the Sierras at that point near the surrounding peaks, and the initial path that we took the day before was broad, it was wide, it was dusty, it was well-traveled, but this path was something different. This path was narrow, it was difficult to find sometimes, scrambling over shale, loose rocks as well, and as you struggle and sweat, as you climb several thousand feet up a path at times it disappears, your lungs begin to burn, and you begin to breathe very heavily, you sweat, your lungs burn, you sometimes wonder, well, is it worth the effort going to all this trouble, 
hiking up an area that is not well worn. Sometimes it's hard to even find the path itself. Finally, at last, you cross the last ridge as you're headed into the higher Sierras, and you find the exquisite Lake Sharon, a beautiful lake. You see it for the first time at that moment as you cross the ridge, and you suddenly realize that it was worth all the effort, all that energy and struggle and sweat, we might say, and you view the turquoise lake, the beautiful turquoise lake, now all the surrounding peaks, and sometimes even in early June or July, floating icebergs out in that lake. They float freely with unique California golden trout. And you realize, wow, what, what a beautiful spot of God's creation. It's quite different than the heavily traveled main trails. And these trails, at times disappearing to Lake Sharon, are less traveled. They are the path less traveled very clearly. Today we find ourselves again at the Feast of Tabernacles, contemplating the coming kingdom of God. And the Word tells us, God's Word tells us, that the path to the kingdom of God is indeed the path less traveled. It's not the wide, broad path of this world, but it is the path less traveled. It is a difficult path, but of course we know it is worth it at the end of that journey. Matthew chapter 7, Christ commented on that, the difference of the paths in life. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Christ said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. In other words, it's the way everybody's traveling on, the same broad path, and there are many who go in by it, the vast majority of humanity at this point, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The road to God's kingdom, as we know, is not the broad, well-traveled path that the world is on. We're on a different path. It's a different journey. It's more difficult to find. It's very difficult to find, but we can stay on that path. It is more difficult to follow, but we can follow that path with the help of God's Spirit leading and guiding us. And it is indeed the path less traveled. The end point of the path, though, is the glorious kingdom of God. And we know as we cross that ridge at the end of that journey, as Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be inspiring to be a part of the family of God, to be changed or resurrected into the very kingdom of God. And we'll know beyond the shadow of a doubt that all that struggle on that very difficult, narrow, arduous path was well worth the effort. The return will be so much more than any effort we've ever put in this life. So today I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at the journey to God's kingdom, the remainder of our years to the very kingdom of God, the path less traveled. It is difficult, but we have every reason to know that we can and we will make it. If we take advantage of what God has given us, I know other sermons will likely give a greater detailed view of God's kingdom, and we need that. We need to be motivated, and that's certainly true. But today I'd like to look at a strategy, a strategy for remaining on that path, that narrow path for the remainder of God's training in our life to God's kingdom. Some of the strategies in various points as we think about that narrow, difficult road ahead of us. And first of all, we need to be absolutely convinced that the path less traveled 
that narrow, difficult path that we're on, that path less traveled, is worth the effort. Any strategy for success in life must include the element of motivation, where we're internally motivated. We want what we want. In this case, we want what God wants for us. As human beings, we are only motivated by what we actually want, not what we should want, not what we think we should want. We all know that the first resurrection at Christ's return is referred to as the better resurrection. That's not our words. That's the words of the Creator. The better resurrection, actually the words of the Creator through fall in Hebrews 11.35. But we might ask, but why does God refer to it as the better resurrection? It's not something, of course, that will, can puff us up. It's not because we're better. But our calling is better, and the end of that journey is better. I, will, I would think that just being in God's family, when we analyze it, you know, the excitement of being in God's family, sometime maybe during the millennium for the second group, or later yet, the white throne judgment, you know, just being in God's family would be plenty good enough. Apparently, God has something in mind unique for us, utterly unique in all the future history of the family of God, and obviously our training then is not like the training fully that will be in the millennium of the second group or in the white throne judgment of the third group. In the, all the eventual family of God, we are the only ones who are expected, that is with God's help, to spiritually prosper in Satan's world and all that Satan has to throw at us. We are surrounded on every side, that is in society, by everyone going the opposite direction, the opposite way. We swim against the current, and it can be a difficult current at times. And this society is not made to be supportive of God's way of life. Obviously, we know that. We are different, and God expects us to be different. We stick out sometimes considerably. We know we're a unique people, but it is a unique opportunity to be firstborn in the very family of God. And in this difficult world, God wants us to succeed with His help, to depend on God, and finally to prove that God's way of life works. God's way of life works for us. It doesn't matter if it works for someone else. You know, theoretically, we must prove that it works for us in our life now. How about those trained during the kingdom of God, during the millennium, that 1,000-year period of time, those who could be called the second group, or we could think of them possibly as the second born. They will be taught by Jesus Christ himself and the rest of the firstborn. They will be taught well, even as firstborn will be able to teach far more effectively, having a sharp mind, a clear mind, total recall, instant recall, better teachers, better able to recall experiences back even in Satan's world. And we'll have that opportunity to teach them as part of the firstborn family. And it will be in the midst of a society that has been revolutionized, overt evil, violation of the letter of God's law, of course, will be eliminated. We won't be able to force the spirit of God's law, but the overt rebellion will be stopped at that time. And, of course, Satan's broadcasting system, some call it the SBS, Satan's Broadcasting System, will be shut down. He'll no longer be broadcasting through the media and through his own wavelength and through society. 
Of course, we know that's part of the atonement message that we've heard recently. And the vast majority will all be going God's way during the millennium. In time, not initially, but in time, the vast majority will be going God's way. And peer pressure in time will be positive. Of course, in this age, it's not often positive. And I think uh, I can remember back in 1980 when our family was at Ambassador College with our four children that by and large peer pressure was positive back in that period of time. And it was exciting for people to encourage each other to do better. And of course, during the millennium in time, peer pressure will be positive. The family of God also will be re controlling the resources and God's blessings for obedience. That will be in force. Even more so, it will be evident blessings for obedience. And it will be evident that all generally will want the blessings of going God's way. I mean, they naturally will want to be blessed to experience a better life. Warmer, stronger relationships, family relationships, marriage relationships, and also the physical goodness as well. The bountiful blessings that this planet has to offer. And they will experience and they will see these blessings. How about the experience of those who are resurrected in the white throne judgment? Might call them the third group. Or even the thirdborn, they'll be the, actually the third group that will enter God's family. And it is true that they will, of course, those who come up in the second resurrection, will have previously lived in Satan's world. That's a given. They've failed in their life. They've somewhat lived Satan's way of life. It was a failed way of life. But they are resurrected into God's world, into the kingdom of God. And there will be all the firstborn there working with them. And there will be all the second group or secondborn working with them. By then, by that time, literally probably several billion, whatever that number is, through the millennium and all the firstborn. And they and, they, and we will be lovingly guiding them in the way, the one way. And of course, they'll want to go God's way. It will be, you know, at least on this planet, the, the paradise that God intends. The earth will have been transformed into a very abundant world by that time. How could anyone in their past failed life, compared to what they will experience in God's kingdom at that time, how could anyone reject God's way of life? Well, some may, but hopefully they will be few. There is no comparison to the training and calling, of course, that we as firstborn will have had. We will... In fact, and we are being trained now to prove even in Satan's world that God's way of life, it works for us, even when tried one-on-one -on -one in the midst of Satan's world. And you know, of the billions that will eventually be in the family of God, and the billions that will be a part of God's family through the millennium and the second resurrection, there could be, who knows, there could be 40 or 50 billion members of God's family eventually, after the second resurrection, we as firstborn will be only a tiny fraction of the entirety of the family of God. Those who eventually will be born into the millennium as potentially secondborn and those who come up in the second resurrection. And we as firstborn will be a tiny, unique fraction. Who knows the size exactly? But you know, if you were wondering and guessing, how many have there been and will have there been over the last 6,000 years as potential firstborn. No one knows, only God knows, but in reality, 
It's just a few, a very few. Could it be a million? I don't know. Of course, God knows. But even if there were a million firstborn members of God's family that come up in the first resurrection or the change at Christ's return, with all the billions yet to come in the thousand years of the millennium, and of course, the second resurrection, the firstborn members of God's family may only be one out of 50,000, as a guess, one out of 50,000 or so eventual members of God's family. We will be, as firstborn, the rare exception, of course, who have been trained and tested and tried in Satan's world with the help and power of the great God. We will have overcome the world, and not by our strength, as we know, but we will be victorious with the help and power as we submit to Jesus Christ, to his guidance, his gentle correction, to his outgoing concern leading us to change our life even even further from this point forward until Christ's return. Notice the rare privilege of being firstborn. And we'll look at a verse or two, Revelation 3, verse 12. Christ said, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go out no more. Apparently, we will be a, a stable, central part of the whole edifice of the family and government of God. It says we will be pillars in the temple of God. And you can also find in Revelation 21:22 that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We will be pillars, we will be principal members of the family of God as firstborn. And continuing with in Revelation 3:12, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So we will be identified with God in name, as well as the heavenly city of Jerusalem by name, the headquarters in time of the universe, and we will be identified with that headquarters. So it appears that the firstborn are forever associated with the headquarters of the government of God, Throughout all the universes, the government of God continues to expand. It appears that we'll be associated with the government of God at that headquarters. Of course, coming and going, but, but the Scripture says we will be pillars in the temple of God. So apparently we, as pillars of the family, that is, will be administering the tens of billions of the secondborn and the, and the third group or the thirdborn members of, of the family from the dazzling headquarters of the universe, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Now, what a privilege, what a rare privilege to be part of the family of God, administering under God the Father and Jesus Christ at that time from the headquarters of the universe. Let's also look at Romans chapter 8, looking forward to the future. The question again, is that difficult, perilous, narrow road to God's kingdom Is it worth the effort? Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. Familiar scripture. I think it can inspire us and encourage us with a vision of the future. And the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8 verse 16. With our spirit that we are children of God. We've been begotten by God's Spirit. And we are potentially firstborn at this point. And if children, then heirs. 
goes on to say, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So if we're joint heirs, we inherit whatever Jesus Christ has inherited. Of course, we know it's all things, the entire universe. If indeed we suffer with him, that is, if we're willing to take our, our difficult, hard knocks in this life that society and Satan throws at us, if we indeed we suffer with him for a few short years, that we may also be glorified together. Obviously glorified as full-born sons of God. Radiant, powerful sons of God. And he goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings, whatever difficulties you have in life, or I do, and the inconveniences, the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that will be revealed in us. Firstborn sons of God, powerful spirit beings, totally committed to God's way of life. And of course, the benefit seeing the rest of the family succeed. Or the earnest expectation of the creation. You know, symbolically, all the galaxies, the entire creation that Jesus Christ created way back when, eagerly waits, symbolically waiting, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Just simply waiting for the expansion of God's family. There's something to be done. There is a purpose and a future for the creation. For the creation was subjected to futility. Futility, one of the laws of thermodynamics, that everything that is organized, as far as energy, gradually disperses, becomes disorganized. So you might say the universe is futile. It's all going to disperse its energy and time, given enough time, It'll become so scattered and unorganized, there'll be hardly anything to see if it were allowed to continue through millions and billions of years. Futility, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope. Implies that God had a plan from the very beginning for the universe. He didn't subject it to Thermodynamics, the law of thermodynamics is ever winding down into nothingness. He had a plan, a hope, a future for the creation. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. My margin says decay. The running down process of decay will be delivered from the bondage of decay into a glorious liberty of the children of God. So you might say we are liberators in the family of God, under God the Father and Jesus Christ. The universe is waiting for us to liberate it from its current state of entropy, its current state of gradually becoming disorganized. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. It's just waiting, waiting, waiting for the revelation, the revealing of the sons of God. That's all of us. And of course, the second group in the millennium and eventually the third group in the second resurrection as well. So the family of God apparently will continue the efforts of God, finish the creation throughout the galaxies, whatever God has had in mind, and will have in mind in the future. God has a plan. God has a purpose. The stars are intended for more than just to light your night sky. God intends to finish His creation, and we will go on from there as God has planned for the rest of His family. So, you know, this is 
That kind of glory, it's kind of beyond in majesty and privilege. It's beyond what we'll ever deserve. We do not deserve that kind of blessing. It's not something we can be prideful of, thinking we've arrived, we've earned it, we've deserved it. We don't deserve our calling, for that matter. We know that God principally calls the weak of the world to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not our genetics, it's not our intelligence, it's not our education, it's not our background whatsoever that is the key to our success. It is our willingness to change, our willingness to be led by the power of God's Spirit, to live by the path of His spiritual laws that allow us to succeed the way of blessings, a greater life, a greater future, eternal life. So the destination of the path less traveled, that more difficult journey as firstborn is clearly awesome if you analyze it. It's a privilege that we don't deserve, but we may not fully grasp it even now. And probably none of us do, but we grasp enough. It is a unique, rare calling to be called firstborn, even in Satan's world, to receive that kind of testing and trial and refinement by God himself. And hopefully we see the end point of that road. We are motivated. We are automatically motivated because our success is assured us if we follow God, if we move closer to the great God, you know, we're motivated by what we want, what we really deep down want. And if we understand it, how could we not want to be firstborn in the family of God? Let's move on to a second aspect of our strategy for success in our journey to God's kingdom right up until that period of Christ's return. You know, following the collapse of the World Trade Center a few years ago, we know that church attendance and the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches of the world was dramatically in increased. Everybody got excited. You know, people need God when there's trauma in their life, when they fear. Millions had witnessed the death of over 3,000 human beings, 3,000 Americans. And it generated a great deal of fear and anxiety. So many began to feel the need to connect with God, to find God for a time. But how long did that last? About a year later, surveys indicate that church attendance and society as a whole dropped way back down to the level it was before the attack. That kind of fear did not motivate them long term. So in one sense, you might say that the average American walks by sight, by what they visually see at the moment in front of them, rather than by faith, rather than the knowledge of the kingdom of God, of the benefits of God's way of life that they can't automatically see. The sight of massive destruction in our land motivated them for a time to try to find God, but a year later, the sight, the memory of the Twin Towers collapsing had dimmed, and it faded from their memory. In contrast, God's people, though, should be able to walk by faith. We have a, a vision that's not strictly physical. It's in our mind. It's in the Word of God. It's, it's in being led by God's Spirit to God's kingdom. We walk by faith. We're motivated not just by what we see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we read, For we, meaning those... We're called to be firstborn, not the world. For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
one profound aspect of living faith is the sure knowledge of what God has promised, that He has promised to us, or He has revealed through His Word, that it will come to pass. We can count on God. Truth is the foundation of God's way of life. God will keep His Word. No concerns, no worries. It will come to pass. You and I know the future. We have the book of Revelation. We have all the prophets. We have so many scriptures. We know about the tribulation ahead of us, at least ahead of the world. We know about the day of the Lord where Jesus Christ begins to get the attention of humanity. We know about the economic collapse, the coming economic collapse of this society. We know about the future World War III and Armageddon and all the rest. And we know that attack, of course, a few years ago, the Twin Towers, as we remember that tragedy of 3,000 people dying. It's just a tiny foretaste of what is in store. Satan's way of life does not work. It brings failure. It brings rebellion. It brings death and destruction. And there is more to come. So my point is, can't we live our lives with a sure knowledge of what is to come to pass and our need to stay close to God, what will come to pass? Just as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, can't we walk by faith, having that kind of confidence right now in God's way of life, in the coming kingdom of God? Or do we need the evidence of literally seeing destruction, of seeing bombs falling maybe in our cities, before getting ourselves spiritually in gear and motivated? Do we really walk by sight before believing God? Or can we walk by faith and believe God now? Well, if that's the case, when we do see massive trauma in the land and decide to seek God, if we primarily walk by sight, by that time it's probably too late to receive God's blessings and protection as He would want for His children. Because we'll need further refinement. God loves us. He's not going to let us go. He's going to work with us further. Our loving God knows exactly what we need. Notice Christ's warning to us at the end of the age. We can find that in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, let's look at verse 1. Of course, we know this Scripture well. And then the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise, five of them them were genuine, five of them were real, and five of them were foolish. In this case, we might say five of them knew about the truth, but they didn't really apply, they weren't really serious in our analogy. So those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. They took oil, they, for us they were closer to God. In our analogy, they had oil, they were closer to God, they studied, they prayed, they lived the way of life, they were ready. Verse 5, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Sometimes probably any of us can slumber or sleep spiritually, but of course Jesus Christ is implying we need to wake up, we need to be ready, we don't know the hour of the day. Verse 6, and at midnight a cry was heard, behold, The bridegroom is coming to go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. In other words, there's a point in time when the door is shut. There's a point in time when God protects his own. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, his final warning, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So the clear indication is, is that we can't wait till Christ is virtually at the door. We must be empowered by God's Spirit today as we walk by faith, living more fully God's way of life, proving to ourselves and others that God's way of life works. It is real. It is genuine. There are blessings for obedience. It is the only way of life that works. Let's also turn over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 and verse 33. Verse 33, we read, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life. The individual cares, the worries, the concerns about career, about this, about the other, about your bank account, about our health. Cares of this life. And that day, that day of the Lord, come on you unexpectedly, unexpectedly, the day of the Lord. Verse 35, For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always. In other words, be in contact with the great God always, looking to God for correction, guidance, direction, inspiration. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, praying always that God will gently correct us to show us areas that we need to change. So are we going to be worthy to escape? We must be close to God. We must be close to God now. We must walk by faith, by the principles of God, by the outcome of those principles, by the kingdom of God that we can't really see at the moment, but we must walk by faith rather than sight rather than allowing simply trauma and tribulation and the day of the Lord to motivate us. And that's not the way to learn. That's not what God has in mind. He wants something better for His children as we walk by faith. We don't need to see the trauma and the tribulation to be motivated. Hopefully, we walk by faith. We understand the things of God, what He has promised. And that motivates us as it is real in our life. Another aspect of walking the path less traveled, the very difficult path that's less traveled to God's kingdom, which I know we all want, is the sure knowledge that God will fight our battles for us in the years ahead. If we want Him to, if we allow Him to, if we are close to Him, He will fight our battles for us. There's always a way. There's always a means for God to intervene, to take care of our issues in life, we really don't have anything to fear if we take God at His word. He'll work with us. He'll provide a way of escape. He'll open a door that we don't know about. Let's look at an example or two. Example in the Old Testament, the story of Israel, of course. 
being led to the promised land. We know they reached the Red Sea. They discovered they were trapped. God led them that way. And as the Egyptians and all their hundreds and maybe thousands of chariots thundered down on the children of Israel, it looked like sure death, but God used this opportunity. And we have these kinds of opportunities in different ways, but God used this opportunity to teach physical lesson, physical Israel rather, a lesson. So hopefully you and I have learned and will learn this lesson as well. If we are walking by faith, if we're actually trusting the great God, God will intervene for us. He'll take care of the difficulties. In effect, God will fight our battles. Not always just physical battles or fighting, but our personal battles, our real battles, the traumas of our life, our difficulties, our deficiencies. God will provide our needs. Of course, in Exodus 14.10, we have that lesson exemplified at the Red Sea. God wanted them to learn this lesson, but He wants us to learn this lesson as well as we anticipate even more so the difficult road ahead of us to God's kingdom. Exodus 14 and verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, they lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. Sometimes we're afraid in life. Situations, circumstances, our health, economics... We're afraid. We're fearful. And so it was with ancient Israel. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. People tend to cry out to God when they have a problem, when they're in trouble. And hopefully we do that, but hopefully we do that before we're in trouble. Now we look at uh, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which we will accomplish for you today. They were clearly walking by sight at that point in time. And, of course, God wanted them to see His might, His power, His intervention. Of course, in this case, their salvation was their physical lives. They faced death. God said, stand still, watch the salvation of the Lord. Verse 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. In other words, calm down, relax, God will take care of your problem. And that lesson, as we know, was lost on Israel. God dramatically intervened, but it certainly shouldn't be lost on us. Those who have access to the Spirit of God, those who have been given understanding, those who are of spiritual Israel. There are so many other examples. Of course, we know God will intervene. We could look at example after example in the Old Testament, of Israel going astray, of finally people turning to their God and God intervening. But hopefully, hopefully we don't need that kind of danger in our life to turn to God. There's no reason to suffer that way. Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. I think a, a very encouraging scripture can give us a great deal of courage and patience, trusting in our God. Let your conduct, let the way you live your life from day to day, hour by hour, be without covetousness. In other words, don't lust after what the world has. Desire what God has to give. And be content with such things as you have. That is, for now, be content with the material blessings that you have. More is coming. And of course, God wants us to 
desire spiritual blessings, desire birth into the family of God, not wealth in Satan's world. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, God himself will never abandon us like some, like some physical parents in this age. I will never leave you or, nor forsake you. You know, what confidence that we can have. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Of course, if we are God's helper, if we are helping Him, if we're praying for the work and for others, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. No matter what I face now or in the future, or I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Well, men can do a lot of things, but God is greater. God is more powerful. God will intervene for us. And in the end, God, if we're not alive at Christ's return, we will be resurrected. Man can't do anything towards us permanently. God is the one who gives us life, eternal life. So in times of trouble, of course, we turn to God. Hopefully, we do that now in our life. We trust the great God. How about the, a future-specific example? Revelation 12 and verse 12. And we will, as we believe, we will see this come to pass for most of us in our lifetime. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time, in time fulfillment, that probably most of us will see in our lives. Verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He gave birth, that is, physical Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Of course, we see... In time, the woman becoming, under the new covenant, becoming spiritually Israel. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Approximately a three and a half year period. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. He did whatever he could do to try to destroy God's chosen ones, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Whether it's an army or, or literal floods, we don't know. But if it is similar to what God said through Moses as they faced the Red Sea. We must walk, of course, by faith, not by sight. We must stand still. We must be confident in the power and the love of the great God. Verse 17 well, verse 16, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. God intervenes apparently at the last moment, but He intervenes powerfully. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who were not fully walking by faith. They were somewhat walking by sight. They were aware of the way of God, and probably many of them were converted, many of them were not. One foot in the church, one foot in the world. Dragon was enraged with the woman, he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God, they know about the commandments of God, 
and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They understand the testimony of Jesus Christ, that way of life, and the coming kingdom of God, the tremendous potential for humanity to become part of the very family of God. Well, that assurance that we see here is continually there for us as we face the future. That ironclad assurance of God that He will intervene for His own. He will fight our battles for us. If we're walking by faith, if we trust the great God, if we know that we know that we know that God is there for us, even though it doesn't look like it at the moment. Let's look at another scripture that that reinforces that as we turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. Applying it to our own lives, hopefully. Romans 8, 38. Paul said, and hopefully you and I are at this point, we're reaching this point. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, even if we face death in the next few years, whether it's cancer or heart disease or some kind of other danger, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, whatever powers that may be, nor things present nor things to come, and we know they will come in our life in the next few years. Things will happen in society. Things will happen to a degree to us. And he goes on to say, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, seen or unseen, even spirit being, even demonic spirit being, shall be able to separate us from the love of God. In other words, fulfilling His plan in us, the love of God to finish His work in us, to be fully born in the family of God in a few short years, shall be, shall not be able to separate us from the love of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're walking closely with God, there is absolutely no power in the universe strong enough to separate us from our God, His purpose in our life, His intervention, His protection, not even Satan in any of His demons. They don't compare to the power, the purpose, the plan, the majesty of the great God. Notice another scripture that could well have its greatest fulfillment, the time of the end, as we look forward to God's kingdom, as we're being led out of society, a crumbling society, disintegrating from within and from without. I think it gives us a great deal of encouragement. We know, again, God will protect us. He fights our battles for us. He's there with us and for us. Psalm 91 is a scripture that potentially could apply to that exact time. As God leads His children out, <clears throat> as He provides for His children. Psalm 91 and verse 1. Very encouraging Scripture as we think about that narrow, difficult path that is less traveled to the kingdom of God. Psalm 91 and beginning in, in verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, under His protection sometimes invisible protection, a shadow. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. He is my refuge. I go to Him in times of trouble and my fortress, my defender. My God, in Him I will trust. Our protector, our defender. Verse 3, Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the, 
of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence, and a fowler being one who traps birds, and from the perilous pestilence. Sometimes birds transmit disease, viruses, as we know, but at any level, that pestilence, whether it's virus or bacteria or even biological warfare, God is there for us. He will deliver us according to God's Word. Verse 4, He shall cover you with His feathers, kind of like an eagle covering its little eaglet, or chicken, its little chick. And under His wings you shall take refuge. Total protection, coverage under His wings. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. God's truth, the sure knowledge of the soon coming kingdom of God. It can be our shield, our buckler, even mentally, emotionally, our protection in difficult times. Verse 5, And you shall not be afraid of the terror by night. Some things are a little more terrifying in the darkness, but we shall not be afraid, nor of the arrow that flies by day, open warfare in broad daylight. Verse 6, Nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness. Most pestilence we can't see virus, bacteria, etc. Nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Of course, this could happen at the very beginning of the tribulation as God leads His people out as well. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. Now, this application here, as God leads His children out, He says, No harm shall befall you as you leave society under God's protection. But it shall not come near you. Now, that's walking by faith, if that is our confidence. We don't see that now. But God says, in effect, I will take care of you. Only, verse 8, only with your eyes shall you look, even from a distance, and see the reward of the wicked, which, of course, is destruction and potentially death. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your habitation, your habitation, your dwelling place, the way you live your life, where you live your life. Verse 10, No evil shall befall you at that time, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, to keep you safe and protected and stable. And they shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone, and you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. So if, if we're being led through the wilderness, if that's the case, no harm will become us. Even among wild beasts, God will protect us. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him, says God. And I will set him on high because he has known my name. We've known the true God and chosen to follow him. And he shall call upon me, and I will answer him. That's a promise of God. We will cry out to God, he will respond, and I will be with him in trouble, even in that time of tribulation. We can apply that to our life now in times of trouble. And I will deliver him and honor him as the firstborn son of God with long life. I will satisfy him. Long life meaning even more so than this life, eternal life forever, and show him my salvation. So God's promise, that is, if we call on God, he will answer and deliver us, and he will show us 
His salvation. He will save our lives. He will save us in eternity as literal sons of God. Another strategy in walking that path less traveled is keeping our focus constantly on the goal in remaining years ahead of us. A few years ago, we were climbing up to that little mountain lake that I told you about earlier at the beginning of the sermon, Lake Sharon, and we were constantly struggling to find the path, but we had one thing to our advantage at that time, the ability to see the higher peaks above us. It was kind of like a marker where Lake Sharon was, and also a little stream that came running down the mountainside at that point in time. We knew the lake was the source of that stream. I'm sure for many who do that kind of thing, who climb Mount Everest, it is tremendously inspiring to catch glimpses of the mountain peak if they can see it as they're climbing. They keep potentially their vision on that peak, Mount Everest or other lower peaks as well. And when you can see the goal, it is much more real to us when we can see, even in our mind's eyes, when we can see the physical goal as we're climbing, it's important, it's encouraging, but we can see in our mind's eye the spiritual goal of God's kingdom, and we can be encouraged. And we are here at the Feast of Tabernacles, having the privilege of catching a glimpse, you know, hopefully a great glimpse in our life. We listen, we hear, we apply it to our life of the coming kingdom of God. It's something we want, it's something we anticipate, but it's in our mind's eye. We can't see it visually, physically, but we can see it in our mind's eye. And the more our focus is sustained on that goal, on that even invisible goal of the kingdom of God, the more real it becomes to us. It becomes real, it's living, it's more living than life it's itself. Let's look briefly at the example of others. We had that kind of vision who kept their focus. They weren't distracted by Satan's world who kept their focus on God's kingdom, those who truly maintained their focus, the great men and women of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, briefly, hopefully encouraging to us. They, at times they had difficulties on the path less traveled. So do we. But God intervened time and again. They developed that faith, that confidence, that rock-solid confidence in the great God of His Word, of the future that He offers. Hebrews 11, and verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham, by faith, confidence in the great God and His promises, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. Well, Abraham exercised faith, but we might ask, faith in what? Faith in God? Well, yes, Abraham had faith in God, but there was more to it than simply faith in God. It was faith in God's promises. Notice verse 6. I think a key concept for us to grasp in our life. Verse 6, But without faith, with, in other words, without rock-solid confidence in the great God, it is impossible to please Him, to please God, to be close to God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. In other words, believe in the reality of the God we know, the Creator, the true God. But it doesn't stop there. That's the beginning level of faith that God wants. There's something higher. And that, number two, he is a rewarder 
This is a higher level of faith and confidence. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You know, God's going to bless us. We know that we know that we know our very fiber of our beings. We realize God is real, yes, but many in society believe in a God. But God is also to us a rewarder of those who diligently, I like to think of it, who aggressively seek Him. So God's going to bless those who seek Him diligently. So it's a reminder that God offers many things, many blessings for obedience, the future, the kingdom of God, eternal life. You know, that difficult, narrow road, there's a benefit, there's a blessing, there's a future. There is a reward for those who diligently seek Him. We have to believe it. We have to know that we know that it's worth the effort. And that's the kind of faith that God wants. It's way beyond just the belief that God exists. That's a good starting point, but we have to have application in our life. We apply His principles. We live His principles. He's going to intervene for us. He's going to bless us. He's going to reward us if we aggressively seek Him. Now, we know it doesn't come all at once in this life. Many things are yet future, but we see the kingdom of God. We have that confidence that God is going to deliver. God's going to deliver His promises. Verse 10 speaks of Abraham and and others, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham and others were looking for that future city, that great city, the heavenly city of New Jerusalem, placed on the earth, beautiful and rich, beyond belief, beyond even our imagination, the headquarters of the kingdom of God for the entire universe in time. So, Abraham looked forward to the kingdom of God, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it visually, but he looked for it in his mind's eye. It was so real to him. As we know, other verses here say that he is willing to sacrifice his own son. He had that that much confidence that God rewards those who diligently seek him, that he knew that God would reward him. God would raise up his son. God would raise up even Abraham later in the resurrection as well. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having received them in their life, but having seen them afar off, having seen it in the promises in their mind's eye, the kingdom of God, it was real, it was exciting, they longed for that kingdom. And I've often thought it's similar in a way to us planning for the feast, where we begin to plan weeks or months before the feast is literal. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of the future when we think about the feast. It's not occurring right now. If When we plan for it, maybe three, four, five, six months ahead, we start thinking about clothes, transportation, the route we're going to take, maybe the activities. We think about these things ahead of time. They become real to us. And the more real it becomes to us, of course, the more exciting the feast becomes, even though the feast may be yet future when we first start planning for the feast. But as we anticipate, as we plan, it becomes real to us. It goes on to say in verse 13, they were assured or persuaded, that is of the promises, the promises of God's kingdom. They, They were rock solid in their assurance as well. 
As I mentioned earlier, in the following verses, I think 17 and 19, Abraham knew that God would resurrect Isaac beyond a shadow of a doubt. They were assured. Abraham was assured. He was persuaded. He did not have doubt. He walked by faith. It goes on to say the great men and women of the Scriptures, they embraced them. They embraced that vision, that promise. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They confessed. They talked often. It was real to them. They talked to their children. They talked to the husband. Husband talking to the wife. It was real. They talked to each other. They confessed. So it was spoken of often. You know, that can be an encouraging part of the feast when we hear about the feast, but also, that is the coming kingdom of God, but also when we talk to each other. We point each other. We encourage each other. We verbalize. In other words, we talk often about the promises of God. Yes, it was through faith in God, but faith in the promises of God, a high-level faith, rock-solid confidence. Of course, that, that focus, that vision, if you will, that vision of the future kingdom of God enabled them to remain strong, remain secure in their journey on a difficult path. And that can enable us to remain strong and secure on a difficult path, the path less traveled, that is, through society. Almost anyone who succeeds in life has a goal solidly in mind. They know what they want, and they want what they know. And, of course, that's been true nationally as well at times. Even for the manned moon landing back in the 60s, it was spelled out to the nation by President Kennedy, by scientists, and in, and in time, it became real. There was so, many, so much effort put into it, preparation and money and scientific endeavor, that it became real to the nation and it was accomplished. But that was minor, even putting someone on the moon compared to what God has in mind for us. How real is the kingdom of God to you, to me? Is it what we truly live for? Is it Sabbath thoughts or is it our entire life? Does it consume our way of life? Is it our obsession, a very positive obsession, hopefully? Is it our obsession, the coming kingdom of God? Well, of course, we know that if not, there's still time. There's still time to get solidly on the path less traveled to God's kingdom, to get real, to get vital with God's principles. We can ask God for a clear vision, to sharpen our focus, to help us be aware fully beyond a shadow of a doubt that God blesses those who aggressively or diligently seek Him. And of course, hopefully we seek that with all our heart. And God, in turn, will bless us, protect us. God will see us through. One final point before we, before we close. One final point in that strategy, on that difficult path, that path less traveled in our journey to God's kingdom, we need to remember, we need to remember that we aren't traveling that path alone. Sometimes maybe we feel like we are. Maybe we're isolated occasionally or a little bit lonely or whatever. But our God is with us, as we see in Scripture, every step of the way. Our God is with us. He's there for us. Of course, we have to have faith to see God in that case when sometimes we feel a little bit alone, but God is there. I think many of us can remember in years gone by, and my wife and I can as well, when our children were toddlers in various times 
over that uh, decade or so that we had very young children. And I might or my wife might be holding one of our children by the hand. And as they toddle along, maybe they would trip and start to tumble or fall. And suddenly their knees would buckle. And uh, you've all experienced that with your children. And one of us, my wife or I, would hold them with our right hand, perhaps. And they would regain their footing before they fell on their face. And uh, you know, they wouldn't necessarily skin their knee or bloody their nose. And of course, that's what God in analogy is offering us. We're not alone. He's holding our hand, our right hand. No matter how difficult the going is, God will be there for us. He'll do the same for us. We know King David had a unique confidence in the great God. Psalm 139, just a brief glimpse of one of many of his confidence in God to deliver. He wasn't alone. Psalm 139 and verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? And think about that in praying to the great God. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I die, you're still going to see me through. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, some isolated scene, part of the earth, even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me, God's hand, our hand in His hand, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, incredible as David was speaking, almost like a little child there, but he was David, King David. A unique confidence in God's ability to lead and guide and to hold him up, sustain him in times of trouble. We see so many examples of God's message, which is, Fear not, for I am with you. In the remaining years that we have, world events will begin to speed up. It will be an utterly unique time in all of human history, as we know. You and I have been extremely privileged to be called and chosen. The remaining part is for us to be faithful, to be faithful to the great God. And we can see that in Revelation 17, 14. We are called, chosen, and faithful. Not just called and chosen, but faithful to the very end, confident and courageous in the great God. And God will see us through. God will see us through in finishing the path less traveled to the family of God, to the kingdom of God. Our calling as firstborn, extremely rare privilege. Possibly, who knows, but possibly one out of 50,000 eventual members of the very family of God will be firstborn. Tremendous rare privilege to be called and chosen and, of course, to remain faithful at this time. You and I do battle with Satan. That is, his society his broadcasting, his perverted mindset that pervades all there is, even the educational system, Christ referred to the path of the firstborn. Indeed, as narrow, as difficult, and we know it is, but we have every reason to succeed. We have every reason to know, with God's help, He'll see us through. He won't neglect us or leave us as long as we don't neglect or leave Him. 1 John 4.4, 4. a couple of scriptures as we close. 1 John 4.4, 4, a couple of encouraging scriptures. 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, 
speaking to us. We are little children in God's sight and have overcome them because He who is in you, that is Jesus Christ, through the power of God's Spirit, He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's obviously Satan. As powerful as he is, Jesus Christ, living his life in us, guiding us, protecting us, inspiring us, is so much greater than Satan and his minions trying to tempt us, trying to twist our minds. It's evident that we have every reason to have confidence in the Creator, Jesus Christ. Creator of the very universe lives his life in us. That is, if we want Him to, if we're willing, and He can literally empower us to overcome the evil one, as the Scripture implies. The one who will hold our right hand, who will defend us with the power of His might. Final Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin in in verse 10. Another encouraging Scripture. As Paul says, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord. In other words, be courageous in God and in the power of His might. So we don't have to be worried or fearful. Our God is is much more powerful than the rebellious, wicked ones. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And all that society has to offer, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Well, we know the evil day is ahead of us, but we have access to the literal power of Jesus Christ, as well as the armor of God, the mind, the process that God has for us of developing His mindset is very fruit of His Spirit, the evidence of the mind of God working in us, thinking like God, making decisions like God with God's help. God will defend us. God will see us through. So we can be assured we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is, if we are absolutely convinced that the path, less traveled, that difficult path, is worth the effort, if we walk by faith in the sure Word of God rather than by sight and reacting to only those things that we see right in front of us that are a danger to us. We are motivated by principle. If we depend on God to fight our battles for us, we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to worry us in the truest sense. That is, if we stay close to God, And if we keep our focus constantly fixed on our goal of the kingdom of God, never wavering, always knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, the kingdom of God and our change or resurrection is out in front of us. And finally, if we take courage in the knowledge that we aren't traveling that difficult path alone. Our God is with us every step of the way. He is there for us, ready to intervene, to lift us up, to provide for us, to protect us. What an awesome privilege it is, brethren. Let's live up to our calling in the remaining years of our life and walk the path less traveled, that more difficult path to God's kingdom. Being there, fully convinced and convicted 
looking forward to the time when we will help billions of other beings into the glorious family of God. What a blessing it is. We need to live up to our calling, our responsibility to remain faithful to the very end, to finish our training. We have so much to look forward to. We can thank God for all that He is and all that He offers to share with us. What a blessing it is.